Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden from the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University in Cape Town, who today joins us on the phone, not not on Skype, but on the phone from Johannesburg. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon. Well, as always, we have three topics, and we're going to dive into them. But uh, we just also wanted to welcome everybody back. We took a little bit of a, a break for the past two or three weeks, and is getting settled in at Tsinghua University in Beijing. Cobus uh, was attending a very glamorous kind of academic conference in South Africa, which we'll talk about in a second. And uh, and we're all just kind of getting back after the summer lull. But uh, three big topics await us. It's been a very busy week. First and foremost, uh, elections in. Angola this weekend. Uh, Jose Eduardo dos Santos went to the polls and uh, he's won a landslide victory. Um, but China once again was an election issue. We'll talk about the role that Beijing played and the issues that it raised. Also, uh, a very important meeting happened in Beijing this week between Egypt's new president, uh, Mohamed Morsi, who signed a number of landmark deals and most notably made his first visit outside of the Middle East to China. We'll talk about and get Kobus's reaction to that and the significance of that. He did not go to Washington, as many had expected. And finally, we're going to talk about uh, Yao Ming, the former NBA superstar. He is now uh, in Africa. He's been there for a couple weeks, and he's filming a documentary uh, trying to raise awareness on the illegal rhino and elephant ivory trade. We'll talk about whether or not this is just grandstanding or if it's actually something effective and what the broader trend is about China and its uh, insatiable demand or seemingly insatiable demand demand for for ivory. So, Kobus, uh, let's before we get started, tell us a little bit about this this conference that happened in Johannesburg, and really want also to give a shout out to uh, to the number of fans that we have at the conference who really said nice things about the show. So, we want to thank everybody for listening and supporting the show. Uh, but this was really the the kind of the world's greatest, uh, you know, the academics and analysts and journalists related to China Africa studies. They got together. Tell us a little bit about what uh, what happened at that conference. Yeah, the conference was um, at Monash University, uh, which obviously the uh, headquarters of Monash University is in Melbourne in Australia, but they have a satellite campus in Johannesburg. Um, and they held a conference uh, for uh, in, in, in collaboration with the Chinese and Africa, Africans in China study group. Um, and uh, you know, kind of so it was, it was super interesting to be there. It was very, I met very, very interesting people, um, and you know, I, I heard, I learned a lot. It, um, you know, people coming to China-Africa relations from all kinds of different disciplines. A lot of people from economics, a lot of people from anthropology, um, and then also, uh, you know, focusing on a lot of different African countries in relations to China. So, you know, I heard a lot about the DRC, a lot about um, Angola, uh, Zambia, um, South Africa, and so on. So it was, it was incredibly interesting. So that's that's interesting to hear that it's now expanding more, you know, this was a discipline that once was dominated by Westerners, but it's interesting to see more Chinese and more Africans uh, getting involved in, 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 the, in the discipline. Yes, yes. Um, and, you know, it's an incredibly cosmopolitan kind of conference. You know, there were also lots of people from Europe, lots of people from Australia. Um, you can really see how the whole world is kind of very interested in, in China-Africa issues. Fantastic. Well, we're going to, to bring in a number of those different countries in our conversation today. Let's start with... Uh, the elections in Angola this weekend. So on Saturday, voters went to the polls in what appears to be uh, a somewhat, 
that's hard to tell right now. But you know, when when you see something like this, a landslide coming in with uh, Dos Santos pulling in seventy four percent of the vote. These are preliminary numbers. We're taping on uh, Sunday afternoon Angola time. Uh, the election was yesterday, but uh, it does appear that uh, that this was not a free and fair election, and there are already concerns that it wasn't a free and fair election. That, of course, is secondary to what we want to talk about, which is China's role in the issue now in the election. Now, issues like you know labor, the the, the ghost towns, the role of Chinese oil purchases, all came up in this election, and this kind of overarching role that China is playing. And what's interesting here, Cobus, is the fact that this is now the third election in Africa in the past past year that we've seen China play a pretty important role, of course, in in Zambia with Michael Sada's win, now currently going on in Ghana, where China, uh, you know, is playing a role in that in that country's election. And now, of course, in Angola, what is your what is your take on both the vote and and the key issues that China played in this election? Yeah, I mean it's, it's it's very interesting to see. I mean, as you mentioned, it's not it's not the most uh, you know optimistic kind of situation. Um, uh, Jose, Leonardo de Santos is now officially Africa's uh, longest uh, longest incumbent president. He's been now for thirty three years. Um, he's he's been longer in power than uh, even um, Robert Mugabe from Zimbabwe. And uh, you know, kind of, and, and a lot of his his power um, comes on the back of this, inc- this really booming uh, relationship with China. Um, you know, Angola is China's biggest trading partner in Africa, um, and most of that is oil. Um, they produce 16% of all China's oil imports. Um, so, you know, kind of. Uh, so, on the one hand, you see that um, you know that that there's been a boom in infrastructure development um, in Angola, a lot of roads, a lot of uh, you know, kind of uh, all kinds of uh, housing infrastructure and so on. But a lot of that infrastructure has been almost. Um, you know, kind of inversely criticized. You know, some of it is for falling apart, some of it for not seeming to not, you know, kind of serve any actual Angolans' lives. Um, you know, and uh, but but um, Dos Santos was campaigning on this idea that he is developing and redistributing and pulling Angola out of out of poverty with the help of China, but it, he doesn't seem to be really believed by anyone. Yeah, I mean, Angola now has one of the highest Gini coefficients, which is the gap between, which is a measurement of the gap between rich and poor. It's one of the, Luanda is one of the most expensive cities in the world. Uh, we can talk all about the huge infusions of cash that have come into Angola, both through China's oil purchases and also through its development assistance. Uh, and it doesn't seem like it's really trickling down to the everyday person. We had, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, I think about two months ago about these these ghost towns that are in Angola. Uh, more recently, we've seen Angola-China cooperation on criminals, uh, gangsters, so to speak, that were repatriated from from Angola in the news. So that it seems at the governmental level, the, the relations are quite good. At the kind of civilian level, the people level, it isn't. So, Cobus, here I'm going to ask the $64 million question again. Um, you know, whose responsibility is this? Is it the Chinese or is it the Angolans? Where does blame lie? Now, a lot of people are blaming the Chinese for creating these, these you know, horribly planned towns, for, you know, making crappily made hospitals, making roads that aren't very good. But at the same time, you know, a lot of those, those issues are determined by the host government. Uh, the quality of work, the quality of materials, the budgets and all of these projects are oftentimes determined by the host government. So this is a question of who is responsible. And, I'll, and before you answer that question, just consider, is the Dutch government responsible for Shell Oil's involvement in Nigeria and the, and, you know, the horrible things that have happened with Shell in Nigeria? I mean, is it a similar situation? So 
take it from there. Yeah, I mean, it's such a complicated situation. Um, you know, the, the journalist and an activist, Rafael Marquez de Moraes, whose name I'm sure I'm mangling, um, is, uh, you know, he wrote this big um, op-ed in the, in the New York Times this week um, complaining about a lot of these problems and also, you know, saying that um, you know, China, the Chinese are not uh, interested in developing Angola. And I, you know, part of me was like, yes, that's terrible. The other part of me was, why should they really be? You know, like, what, what is, why does China necessarily have to have a responsibility to develop Angola? If, you know, uh, the, you know, this, this, this long-term, like several decades long NPLA government isn't, if they aren't taking the responsibility to develop Angola, why should a country, you know, kind of, uh, many, many miles away in East Asia, why, why should, they necessarily get the, you know, inherit the responsibility. It's, it's, you know, just objectively speaking, it doesn't seem to make any sense to me. I think, I mean, I, I, I completely agree, and I, I say the burden does fall on the host governments, and that really, and this is, and this is really, you know, we, we've talked about this a number of times, how this is Africa's biggest challenge, that the host governments have to stand up and have to be able to, to leverage you know, the relationship with China, and then they have to be able to channel those resources into the best use. And if the, if it's, and if, again, if it's not the Chinese, it'll be somebody else. It'll be the Americans, it'll be the Europeans, it'll be the Japanese, the Brazilians. It doesn't matter. Swap out one foreign power for another. The corruption really needs to be held accountable by the people to their governments. And if they're not taking advantage of these relationships, then really, in my opinion, it should fall uh, entirely or mostly on the shoulders of the host government. We've seen in Rwanda, Paul Kagame has done an excellent job at, you know, manipulating and at the same time leveraging the relationships with foreign powers uh, to really to the betterment of his own people in society, not necessarily for democracy, you know, separating politics from economics here. So, yeah, that's another point, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Angola is a pretty sad situation when it comes to the to the political uh, side of things. And in Cobas, interestingly enough, I'd like to get your reaction to this, uh, Dos Santos has said that China in some ways is his 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 model he's looking at you know he says well he wants to use economic development as a priority and then political development will come later ironically he's not developing the economy the same way the chinese did but he does he's actively said that uh that china is is a model for him politically yeah, I don't know. You know, kind of it's um, you, you hear that so so often in China. You know, you have the, um, you know, and and it's it's extremely very difficult for me to really gauge what these African leaders really mean. Um, you know, kind of because it, it seems to mean that frequently it simply seems to mean that we're gonna we not gonna have you know kind of political rights and and you know um and the the, some, the assumption is that uh, you know that that there's going to be instead of political rights there's going to be political there's going to be economic development. But I mean Africa. Proven over and over that it's possible to have neither of neither political rights nor economic development. Um, you know, so um, you know the, the problem for me also is that in in a, the, the, in a situation like Angola where the wealth gap is so visible, you know, and the uh, you know it's so flagrant. Like apparently, I was reading that there's a Porsche dealership um, in Luanda, and apparently the Porsche dealership has sold like 170 of these cars that are you know like cost at least like hundred. Seventy dollars, and uh, sorry, one hundred and seventy thousand dollars. Um, you know, per, per car, they've sold like like close to two hundred of them in the last two years. 
Um, you know, and at the same time, these cars actually can't make it across the roads because the roads are in such terrible, terrible condition. That's, you know, in a situation like that, it's very difficult for me to, to, to imagine either, uh, you know, kind of either obviously political rights, but it's also difficult actually to imagine Chinese-style economic growth because the Chinese have put so much work into building up actual infrastructure, you know, and, and building and, and like dragging like normal middle-class people, you know, kind of people from the, from, from being very poor into the middle class. And that does not seem to be Angola's model. No, and one of the most uh, sensitive issues in Sino-Angolan relations, of course, is the presence of some 250,000, that's an estimate, uh, Chinese workers. And a lot of the projects of these, that the infrastructure and the cities that are being built are being built by Chinese labor, not by uh, Angolan labor, or not exclusively by Angolan labor. And that really seems to be getting under the skin of, of a lot of local activists in a country where it is so poor, where in a country it is so uh, so desperate, and in a country also where a lot of men particularly fought bitterly in the civil war in that country and feel that they've been abandoned by the government that they fought for. Um, so this issue of the labor uh, seems to be a flashpoint in, in Angola more so than in, than in other countries. Do you see that spreading to other countries in terms of as a rallying cry, or are the issues that we're seeing in Angola going to stay in Angola and be more local issues there? No, I think I think there's a good chance that it might spread. I mean, that's the kind of resentment that's that's you know shown up in lots of other African countries as well. I mean, that said, it's difficult for me to really to really gauge like how many of these uh, Chinese living there. You know what? What all of them are necessarily doing? You know, kind of a bunch of them obviously are laborers, and but a whole lot of them are also traders. Um, you know, and obviously, you know, because we've discussed in the past that a lot of of uh, sub-Saharan African countries are busy cracking down on Chinese traders. Um, and apparently the Chinese traders in, in Angola also face kind of pretty difficult situations. But also another, and, you know, another problem that they're facing, um, and that's particularly true for richer Chinese, um, the, you know, all these extras and so on, is just rising waves of crime. They seem to be targeted by different kinds of criminal gangs, um, not only from Africa, like a bunch of them from the DRC apparently, and also from Nigeria, but also from China. So, um, you know, kind of there, there's been, uh, you know, as you mentioned before, there's been some kind of cooperation between Angola and, and China to try to crack down on some of these Chinese gangs, and a bunch of people have been arrested. But apparently, um, the Chinese businessmen in Angola are wearing disguises, they're getting bodyguards, they're buying these bulletproof, you know, kind of limos in which they kind of move back and forth. It's insane. Um, you know, so it, it seems like there's a kind of a crisis in law enforcement in Angola as well, and the Chinese seem to be the target of that. Well, that's not surprising, but I think it raises an interesting point that, uh, you know, Howard French brought up this week. At, at a, a, there was a video that we posted on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. I posted up a, a, a talk that Howard French, the, the noted journalist, Sino-Africa journalist, and also Columbia University journalism professor, he gave a talk at the Foreign Correspondents Club in Hong Kong about China-Africa relations. And one of the things that he said, and, it, and it, this goes to your point, Kobus, is this idea that how limited what limited power the Chinese government actually has. That when you have a population that is now largely private enterprise traders, uh, you know, this population that is just surging, um, the Chinese embassies or the government really doesn't have the control even if it wanted to. So all of this issue of the crime is, is really happening outside the purview of any official controls. So when we talk about what China should or shouldn't do, I think French brings up an excellent point. That's kind of becoming an increasingly moot point because the Chinese 
population and the scale of their business interests are so kind of fragmented that they don't have the ability to control anything if they wanted to. So this past week, Cobus, we saw the repatriation of 37 suspected gangsters. Now, these were apparently kind of the people involved in some of the organized crime that you talk about in Angola. And this was really one of the first times we've seen an African country cooperate with Chinese law enforcement in Africa. So, so that was kind of supporting what you're saying. But this idea that French brought up uh, saying, suggesting that there is no control even if people wanted or even if the Chinese government wanted to be able to assert itself in, in a place like Angola. Yes, and also because what I recently heard is that it's frequently Chinese communities in Africa. They tend to. It's not only that the that the, the embassy doesn't, you know, doesn't have the the manpower or, the, or you know the the resources to actually keep track of of, of Chinese immigrants. There, frequently Chinese immigrants on purpose don't register themselves or make themselves known to the Chinese embassy because apparently it opens them up to all kinds of obligations. So if the Chinese embassy knows that you're a big Chinese business person in some African country, then you have to then you kind of get roped into, you know, entertaining, you know, trade delegations and, you know, meeting guests and like, you know, you, you kind of get pulled into a kind of a into an, or the Chinese orbit, you know, kind of where you where you face a lot of obligations like people would obviously when they live in China. So apparently, <laughs> the Chinese community tend to not want to make contact with their own embassy because you know because it kind of breaks you know it it sucks up some of their kind of business business dealing time, um, you know, and they have to suddenly make space on the schedule for all of these all of these uh, you know these official visits and then probably you know meetings and so on and so on. I mean, it, it, it's such a complicated situation, you know, that that reflects so much of of uh, you know, issues within China, you know, and kind of like replicating themselves outside of China in these different African countries. Yeah, and also just one final point on this is that there really isn't the diplomatic tradition in the Chinese uh, embassies around the world for them to have what we call citizen services. So this idea that I'm an American and I live overseas, the U.S. Embassy is a whole range of services to assist me no matter who I am. If I'm a small trader, if I'm a, you know, a big business person, they will help me vote. If I'm in trouble, they'll help me find a doctor. There's a number of different things that they can do to help. The Chinese don't have that tradition, so they kind of, you know, people expect them to be able to help their, uh, you know, their citizens overseas, and most notably, Chinese citizens get frustrated. If you go on to Sina or some of the the BBSs out there, you'll hear one can read one complaint after another uh, from Chinese citizens across Africa saying how the embassies just aren't there to support them. So we'll come back next week and talk, uh, do a quick follow up on Angola, kind of see how you know the vote finally settled out take a look at some of the key issues that kind of, you know, what played in in people's minds and whatnot. But definitely China was an issue this week and was something that we wanted to address. But let's move on to, you know, far north, all the way to the tip into into North Africa and Egypt. And and really what some are calling an historic visit, I call it a landmark visit. Historic, we'll find out if it's historic in in the years to come. But the new Muslim Brotherhood, the president of Egypt, Mohamed Morsi, made his first trip outside of the region, outside of the Middle East, not to Washington, which is the Egypt's longstanding traditional ally, but to Beijing. And many people interpreted this as a sign of a reorienting of Egyptian foreign policy to try and leverage China in a not only against the United States, but to bring China in as a major power in the region and to recognize that China's potential for Egypt. So what was your reading of his decision to go to Beijing? And when was it just about money, in your opinion? 
Well, um, you know, apparently, you know, according to um, you know spokespeople of, of the um, of the Egyptian government, it seemed to you know economic issues seem to have been kind of foremost for them. You know, because obviously, like Egypt's economy took a massive hit. You know, kind of from from the kind of upheaval that happened there, um, and uh, you know, apparently, like the you know uh, uh, the investment from China was was apparently their their, their biggest concern. That said, it clearly wasn't the only. You know, and Morsi was, I think, was, was clear in kind of positioning himself as um, someone who's not beholden necessarily to the United States. Although apparently his next visit after China is going to be to the United well, States, that, and that after that makes to sense. Brazil. So, so let's talk a little yeah, bit about so, the economic. Know, the, uh, yeah, so let's talk very quickly about the economic deals that were signed. Uh, eight uh, deals in total. Uh, the largest one was a was a soft term, a soft loan from China, valued at about two hundred million dollars. Uh, other ones were. $70 million. And I guess the point of this is that relative to the United States, this is a very small relationship. Bear in mind that the United States, you know, sends Egypt to the tune of $1.2, $1.3 billion every year. So China's financial commitment in uh, to, to Egypt is still relatively small. One very sensitive point, though, in Egypt, and I was just there last year myself, uh, and this came up in a number of my conversations with people in the street, is that you go all over Cairo, and even in Alexandria and all over the country, and you see low-cost Chinese imported products. Uh, and, and that is putting terrible pressure on, on Egyptian manufacturers to kind of meet the China price. This is, of course, the same problem that we're seeing in South Africa and you're seeing in other manufacturing zones in Africa. So ironically, you know, a closer, closer trade relations could you know, negatively hurt Egypt. What, what's your thought on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose uh, it, it seemed to me that, you know, kind of large-scale investment might be helping Egypt and then small-scale trade might be hurting individual Egyptians. Because, I mean, you know, there's already moves to to, um, to heavily invest in the uh, automobile um Assembly in Egypt, um, you know, for for the whole of for the whole of the the Middle Eastern Eastern market. So, um, Chinese uh, car firms are apparently investing in you know in, in having their, their their cars assembled in Egypt and then shipped from there to the whole of the of the the sub region. And apparently, the the um, the Chinese are very interested in um, preferential trade agreements that Egypt has with with many states in that region. You know, so it makes sense for Chinese to manufacture in Egypt and then. You know, kind of have uh, those products kind of move out of Egypt as kind of vaguely as Egyptian products. Um, you know, and to to kind of through those open doors to the entire subregion. Um, you know, and so it seems like seen from the top that makes a lot of sense, and probably seen from a government you know level bird's eye view it makes a lot of sense. But seen from the street, it, you know, that it, it might look very different. Yeah, and also bear in mind too that Egypt has a domestic market of about 90 million consumers. Many of them are actually quite poor, but still it is a domestic market. Egypt doesn't have the natural resources that other African countries offer offer China, but what it does have is geopolitical importance. And this is another area that, that, that took center stage in the discussions. Now, bear in mind, China is now expanding its influence in, across the Middle East, particularly in, in the conflicts that happened in Libya and Syria. Uh, China with Russia has been a very, very important role uh, player in the, in the Syria conflict, and, and Egypt is trying to assert itself now under Morsi's leadership to become a mediator in the Syrian conflict. And it seems like those two working more closely together, the Syrians and the Chinese, I'm sorry, the Egyptians and the Chinese, uh, that could be potentially very important. So a diplomatic uh, you know, aspect to this trip as 
well. What what, what do you do? You see the importance on that as you know, and, and and really as a rebuff to the United States that Egypt is potentially, you know, looking to China more for diplomatic leadership than the United States. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. It's going to be very interesting to see because on the on the on the um, surface, it seems uh, that they that they they face certain kind of differences about Syria. I mean, you know, the Chinese have, have avoided, uh, you know, joining the, uh, you know, joining the American side on uh, on sanctions on Syria. Um, and uh, you know, obviously, um, Mohammed Morsi himself um, recently really publicly rebuked Syria and actually called, you know, called the uh, the Syrian delegation to walk out of a, of a, a, a you know a, a meeting um, in Iran. Um, another thing. Another obviously hot button issue in, in, in diplomacy in the Middle East is um, Israel and Palestine, and uh, you know I wanted to ask your opinion actually. The um, the spokesperson for Morsi said that he got an agreement from Lujantal to support the Palestinians, um, and they didn't say anything more. I was like, like kind of dying for a second sentence there, you know. I'm like, what do you make of it? What does that actually mean? Well, remember that you know. China's long-standing relationships with Yasser Arafat and the PLO go back to the, you know the whole revolutionary phase of Chinese foreign policy. That has changed a lot over the past ten to fifteen years. China and Israel um, have gotten much, much closer. In fact, there was a, a spying scandal that happened about fifteen years ago on the military side, where the where allegedly American technology funneled through Israel was making its way to to China. But more importantly, uh, you know, the, you know, China looks to Israel as an emerging economic partner, both for technology, for markets, for, uh, you know, and so their relationship is getting much, much closer. So it's not a, a blanket a statement anymore that the Chinese are pro-Palestinian, pro-revolutionary. The Chinese have to really manage uh, and maintain a, a very delicate balance between their conflicting interests. They do want the technology that comes out of Israel. Um, they also feel a historical link be, with the Israelis. This is something that's very interesting in the sense that, you know, Jewish you know, history and Chinese history are the two oldest continuous civilizations on the planet. Uh, so when these two leaders get together uh, in the last meeting between, I think was uh, when Jiang Zemin, if I'm, I might be off on this, but uh, Netanyahu met with Jiang Zemin. And really, these were the two oldest civilizations. And there was a bond, you know, in part because the Chinese do identify so much with their own history. Uh, geopolitically, they do see an importance in terms of also not, you know, conf having any form of conflict with the United States, where Israel is such an important ally. Um, so, you know, that, that kind of verbal support to the Palestinians through Morsi is something that's important. It's something that's deeply rooted in contemporary Chinese foreign policy. But at the same time, um, it probably doesn't tell the whole story of China's position in that part of the world. Yeah, no, I mean, it's so interesting to see, you know, kind of, it's going to be super interesting to see what kind of role China plays in the future. You know, it's a very, it's a really kind of ease themselves into, uh, you know, mediation there. I mean, that, that could be, that could be valuable, but yeah. potentially. It's you know, hard, but it's hard to see the Americans the being pushed out of that yeah. role. I, I think the Americans would see this as, as a real threat to them. Yeah, the, the issue though with the Americans are that they, that they roll this for fraught. You know, that, that, that it's, it's very difficult for them to do real mediation there because they seem to be so, uh, you know, so biased, I think, within with yeah. the Middle East. So, no, so it, it might be possible for the Chinese to play some kind of role. You know, I'm, I'm always optimistic. You know. One final point to bring up here on, on Sino-Egyptian relations, and I think it's, it's worth mentioning that last February, uh, when the, the Libya conflict was, was really ramping up, 
Um, the Chinese uh, you know, naval destroyer, or it was a frigate, uh, the Shuzhou, the made its way through the Suez Canal for the first time. And that was, uh, you know, as part of the rescue operations of 29,000 Chinese nationals who were evacuated from Libya. Uh, and that was that was an interesting, you know, kind of moment when a Chinese battle group showed up in the Mediterranean, uh, and it really kind of had this statement to the world that here we are, where the Chinese Navy is in far, far removed places that you would not have expected to see the PLAN, uh, you know, sailing sailing those seas and actually being quite effective. Uh, so I could imagine too that the discussions had in terms of making sure that the Suez Canal is open not only to Chinese commercial traffic, but, you know, in the future to Chinese uh, military and naval traffic that goes through there. So I think that's another interesting aspect to this relationship and why Egypt is so critical, uh, not only to the United States, but also to China as its military, commercial, and diplomatic footprint uh, expands in North Africa and also on that East African peninsula around Somalia and off the coast of Somalia, where Chinese warships are now participating in the multinational uh, anti-piracy operation. So we will keep an eye on, on, on Egypt. It's not a, a big market yet. It's not one of the most hot activities for China, but it does seem like there's a lot going on uh, in lots of different areas that make it absolutely fascinating. So, Kobus, let's move to our third topic. Uh, this is something that came out a couple weeks ago. We posted it up on our Facebook page. Didn't get an enormous amount of comment and feedback on it, but it is interesting. Uh, Yao Ming, former Houston Rockets sensation, uh, former Chinese basketball sensation and star, kind of came out of nowhere and showed up in Kenya and took some beautiful pictures. I think he's with uh, an NGO called Wild Asia um, and really raising awareness on uh, on, on poaching and, and uh, illegal ivory trade using rhinos and, and elephants. Uh, is this, okay, so there's two kind of schools of thought on this, Cobus. Cynical, kind of just, you know, superficial, yeah, they're kind of, you know, you know feel-good activism, or is this something that we should pay attention to in terms of a real change in Chinese popular culture that maybe younger generations, you know, feel and, and recognize that this type of killing cannot continue? Uh, for me, it seems like it's potentially interesting. It's potentially um, significant. Um, well, no, Yang Ming, before Yang Ming started working on the, the ivory issues, he did an anti-shark fin campaign that actually had um, this quite kind of interesting effects. Apparently, the Chinese government, after that campaign, the Chinese government officially announced that they're, they're stopping serving shark fin soup at, um, at official banquets. And, of course, the shark fin industry is much more economically integrated. You know, there's many, many more people involved in fishing and processing and shipping shark fin than, in, than ivory in, in China. So it, it was potentially a much more con um, controversial campaign, um, and he seemed to have had some kind of success with it. I think the other reason is that apparently... Um, many Chinese people, and um, uh, I read an, uh, a percentage, 70% of Chinese people apparently don't realize that an elephant actually dies when you cut off its teeth, its, its tusks. Um, you know, so it, it seems like it's a relatively easy thing, well, easy, you know, kind of, a, you know, a, a dual thing, to convince people that ivory is a bad idea once you kind of establish the idea that the elephant actually has to be killed to get those tusks in the first place. So, you know, um, if, if he manages to do that, then it's, uh, you know, kind of, in, then obviously it's, it's a big success. I think it's also interesting because um, I think some of the ways that they're doing it is innovative, and, and that, 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 you know, is, is actually pretty exciting. It is hard to overstate, uh, you know, Yao Ming's 
power in the in the commercial market. I mean, you walk through any Chinese city, and you cannot walk ten meters without seeing some form of ad related that that I mean that Yao Ming is not, is a part of. I mean, from China Unicom to 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 various you know soft drinks, you name it. He is everywhere. I mean, this is David Beckham, uh, you know, times ten in terms of marketing power. So they they really couldn't have have picked or he couldn't have volunteered a better person than, than Yao Ming to do to raise awareness to this. It's also worth mentioning, and I tweeted this the other day, um, that while China is by far and the, the you know the Chinese, you know, Hong Kong, Taiwan and, and uh, you know ethnic Chinese are by far the largest consumers of this illegal uh, and reprehensible ivory, um, they are by no by no means alone. I mean, Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, those are other markets as well that, that demand it. So Yao Ming is, a, is one of the few personalities in this region that can transcend those different uh, cultures to, to gain awareness for what, you know, what is going on. That said, uh, will it be enough? Even China's biggest superstar may not be enough because the demand is just so high uh, I read the other day, Kobus, that you know the price of, of an ounce of ivory is is even worth more than gold right now at you know over a thousand dollars an ounce. Mm. So you know yeah. all the good intentions in the world and all the best PR in the world, when the price is that good, the poachers are just going to keep going because that's just where the money is. Yeah, I think I think so. I think you have a point. You know, the other issue, obviously, is that some African governments are pretty successful in in in. Uh, and, you know, saving and, 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 you know, breeding elephants, and they end up with too many elephants, you know. Um, and elephants are, are um, they're majestic, but they're also incredibly destructive on the environment, and having too many in an enclosed environment tends to mean that you end up with no trees. Um, what What is, you know, in, encouraging for me about this is that, um, is that you not only it's not only Yao Ming getting involved, it's it's also some very big Chinese um, you know tech companies getting involved. Um, so for example, if you apparently if you uh, if you use China Mobile and you use the roaming services and you um, and you arrive in Kenya, um, then you get an automatic kind of uh, you know text message on your on your cell phone informing you that searching is illegal. Um, Baidu, uh, you know the big the big Chinese search engine, also um, started putting up automatic kind of anti-poaching pop-ups. Um, you know, if you if you use the Chinese version of YouTube, um, so it's it's interesting to see um, these kind of mega corp- Chinese mega corporations starting to take a stand on this. It's an interesting issue to take a stand on as well. Um, you know, and um, you know, from from living in, in Japan for a long time, you know, I'm whaling. Obviously, I mean, you know, Japan has such a false relationship with whaling. And, um, you know, when you're in Japan, it's always like you never, it's the whaling issue never comes up. You know, it's, you, 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 would, you would live years in Japan and not really see much kind of whaling issues covered in the Japanese press. It's like, you know, they just ignore it. So it's very interesting to see the Chinese press jumping on this, you know, kind of, and really kind of uh, developing lots of kind of interesting new tools to kind of get the message out. So I found that pretty encouraging. It, it looks like it could be, You know, it also coincides with a much greater sense of environmental awareness in China, in part because the Chinese themselves are choking on their own air and they're, 
you know, can't drink their own water. Uh, and the environmental conditions in China are quite serious. So there is a, an appetite for consuming environmental information. And uh, of course, Yao Ming is, is by far, you know, one of the best spokespeople. But another, to your point as well about the, the growing campaigns for to raise awareness on this, um, a friend of mine just returned to Beijing and, and posted on his Instagram feed, you know, the, the anti-poaching uh, flyers that are that, that are at customs uh, for rhino and for uh, for elephants. So if you're just taking that as an as as what the the priorities are of of the customs department and the government, there's some awareness of this and it's starting to happen. Again, will it you know slow the demand for it? It's hard to tell. Um, but you know, to your point as well, uh, you know the the shark fin campaign was incredibly effective, and not just in China, but also in other Chinese communities around the world, including the United States, in Vietnam, in Taiwan. You know, shark fin has gone, you know, is not on the menus anymore. And that really is a credit to Yao Ming. So hopefully he can do the same thing uh, with this. I am entirely partisan on this one where I'm just, you know, outraged by the level of poaching. And, and again, wish that the various African countries could follow Kenya's lead. And I think Kenya is one of those examples of those countries that's invested a lot in in, in, in preserving African rhinos and uh and elephants as well. So, uh, well, listen, that'll do it for this edition. Hopefully next week we're going to be joined by Anne Sherman again. Uh, in the meantime, you can follow Anne as she's trying to find her way through the various, uh, you know, get onto Facebook from China, which is not always very easy. Uh, but she'll get on and start moderating our Facebook community at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your comments, your feedbacks on the, sh- on the show. You can pick up the show on Facebook. We've got a whole new page where we've got all of our archive shows that are there. You can also pick us up on Stitcher. Uh, you can follow us on SoundCloud and, of course, on iTunes, where you can subscribe to the podcast. We're here every single week. We are back from our summer vacations. We'll hopefully improve some of our bandwidth connections. We do this internationally, so sometimes the, the Internet gods don't always like to cooperate with us. Um, in the meantime, Cobus, uh, if people would like to follow you on Twitter and kind of stay on top of what you're doing and some of the China-Africa stories that you're following, uh, where can people find you? Um, I'm at Stardenesque, I haven't been on Twitter very much this last week because I was busy, crazy busy with, with field work in Johannesburg, but um, this coming week I'll be better and I'll be, uh, I'll try, uh, you know, I'm, generally I try and tweet a few stories every day. Fantastic. And you can also find me on Twitter. I'm tweeting almost every day, like Kobus, trying to keep up with everything. Uh, I'm at E-O-Lander, that's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm also posting on our Facebook page once or twice a day, uh, so you can follow me there. And so until next week, uh, thank you so much for listening and for subscribing to the China Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. Talk to you again soon.